Welcome to the Filmlings Podcast, a weekly podcast where we analyze all that goes into effective filmmaking. I'm Jonathan. And I'm Alex. And this is week 34, Classic Capra. And we're back, Jonathan. We are back. We are back in America in a big and patriotic way this week. Right. Maybe one of the most patriotic uh, filmmakers to have ever existed um, who liked to create uh, films that were very patriotic in their sense and documented uh, American life. Yeah. So we are talking about Frank Capra this week, kind of the embodiment of the American dream himself and that that bleeds over into some of his films, specifically one that we'll be talking about uh, today. And just to go ahead and throw this out at the front, we're not talking about It's a Wonderful Life today. We are going to save that for a Christmas episode a little bit more timely. Um, it's so Christmassy. I know it's very Christmassy, um, but I know people think Frank Capra and that's the first one that comes to their mind. But we are saving that and we're picking three of his other uh, huge hits, of which there are many. Um, but first, a quick little uh, background on Frank Capra. He lived uh, throughout the uh, 20th century from 1897 to 1991. He was actually born in Sicily and immigrated to America in a very poor family. Uh, they lived in California, and he was very adamant growing up about uh, getting his education and becoming well-educated because he he realized that people with money are usually uh, intelligent, educated, uh, and he really wanted that for himself and for his family. So he studied chemical engineering at the California Institute of Technology, and that actually comes into play whenever he eventually gets into Hollywood, basically just by muscling himself in and, uh, you know, meeting people and kind of like proving himself just through his own charisma and talent. And uh, so as as he starts working his way up, he ends up in Colombia, where he spends a large part of his career in Colombia originally was not a major studio by any stretch of the imagination, which we will talk about. Uh, and through his films and his success, he kind of brings them to the status of of the major players in the Hollywood studio system. Um, and he also eventually, once World War II comes around, he makes a series of propaganda films. One of the major American directors to be making films in that time period uh, in terms of the war. And also throughout his career, he was president of the Academy uh, for several years and also president of the Directors Guild, sometimes at the same time. And he would use his uh, he would use his positions to kind of get better uh, treatment at the Academy or the Directors Guild or vice versa and stuff like that. So he was a a major player in all things Hollywood throughout his life. And uh, he kind of epitomizes the the golden age and the American dream and the idyllic American life and society in his films. And whether or not uh, you buy into that personally, dear listener, um, Frank Capra definitely did. And it shows in his work um, how, just how much he believed in it. And that's one of the big things we're going to be talking about today because it's one of the things that permeated his work and his belief system. Uh, but what films will we be talking about today, Jonathan? What's our first one? 
The first film we're talking about is the first film to win the grand sweep at the Oscars, which is Best Film, Best Directing, Best Actor, Best Actress, and Best Writing. Uh, and that is It Happened One Night from 1934. Um, and it is also one of the first screwball comedies and just a great uh, road film. And it kind of takes a lot of uh, tropes and things that have already been started happening and being seen in Hollywood and just does them in the best uh, way possible and uh, shows that even if you've seen something uh, many times, if it's done really well, you can still make a really great film. And the second film we'll be talking about today is Mr. Smith Goes to Washington from 1939, starring Jimmy Stewart. And this is the one that where we're, where we're really talking about the American dream. Um, and we're really talking about what America means and kind of a mixed representation of that, but definitely um, a representation that Capra portrays of his, uh, his hyper, I, I don't know, hyper sounds a little harsh almost, but very true patriotism. Um, and it definitely shows in this work. Absolutely. And then we will be wrapping up with a Halloween film, uh, because the department stores have started bringing out their Halloween stuff. And so we figured we would too. (laughs) And that is Arsenic and Old Lace from 1944 ish. And that is, uh, it's a comedy kind of, uh, I don't actually know how to describe that movie. I'm not 100% sure on it either, but I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's it's a comedy, crime comedy. Is that a thing? Well, I think that's the best way to describe it. Well, crime comedy is definitely a thing, but I don't know. Maybe, I, I don't want to say dark comedy because it doesn't have those dark tones. Uh, I don't know. That'll be an interesting question. How do we categorize this movie? And uh, we will talk about that later on when we get to it. But for now... Let's hop into It Happened One Night from 1934. And Jonathan, do you want to tell us what this film is about? So It Happened One Night is, again, it's a a screwball comedy, which is kind of a specific kind of comedy from the golden age, 30s and 40s, where it's it's most often a romantic comedy, but it has very fast dialogue, uh, very quippy language, and um, kind of... Uh, uh, the misunderstanding situation where there's a, a, a miscommunication somewhere and things get mixed up and characters get all confused and it creates these very hilarious situations and uh, when they're done right they're super funny and it happened one night definitely does it right but basically the plot follows a spoiled heiress Ellie Andrews who has run away from home she wanted to marry this guy that she met and uh, her father disapproved and so she gets upset and runs away and she runs into a reporter Peter and uh, basically Peter wants to help her get to the man that she's in love with because it's a great it's a great story for him he can pitch this as the rich heiress getting back to her love interest and all this kind of stuff. So they end up on this uh, kind of adventure together because they end up running out of money and all these shenanigans happen um, and fall in love on the way. And uh, you can imagine what happens, but through misunderstandings and stuff like that, we get put in uh, all kinds of crazy situations. And there's so much to talk about with this film because, again, this is one of the oldest films we've talked about. I mean, we've talked about some old films on this uh, 
uh, on this podcast, but this is back in 1934, and the art and craft of filmmaking is still very much uh, in its infancy and still being created and defined. And you talked about the screwball comedy, and It Happened One Night is often credited, and I'm willing to believe that it is the first screwball comedy and kind of invented right. the genre and launched it as um, as a genre to, to carry forward. And it's something that Frank Capra um, definitely excelled at, and a lot of his films go that way, as we'll see when we get to Arsenic and Old Lace, which is the screwiest of screwball comedies. <laughs> right. Um, and I'm not even sure if that's an accurate description for it. I'm still not sure. But <laughs> but it is, it is important. Uh, it, it's kind of cool to go back and look um, at this film and think about all of the romantic comedies, all of the goofy romantic comedies that came afterwards and think that this is one of the ones that really set it up. And it does hold up still today. Um, it does. It really does. You, you, yeah, it, it definitely, it, the, the age shows, I'd say you feel, uh, it feels almost like a period piece, uh, in more than one way, definitely in the way, uh, the characters interact uh, the treatment of men and women by each other um, and, you know, other factors, the fact that they're on like a really old timey bus shows and the fact that uh, they're all in the old costume shows, although at the time that was all modern, obviously. Yeah. And I mean, I remember seeing this for the first time uh, a couple years ago in film school and, um, you know, being still like like impressed with the way how funny it was and how it's still the the plot turns still kind of catch you off guard and uh, you're still like end up really rooting for them to get together and all this kind of stuff and uh it is it is period it is set in a older time but i think still the uh it's like the the basics of what's going on like the the comedy and the dialogue and stuff like that it's still pretty universal and uh so even if you can't make it nowadays with since we have modern technology and stuff like that, which screws up a lot of old timey movies because like, oh, you can just use your cell phone and track where she is. And then <laughs> and then she oh, can't yeah, run away find, or whatever. Her dad would find her in like five minutes. Like, right. But uh, but even aside from that, putting it in that time period, just just the the way the interactions work, Clark Gable and uh, and Claudette Colbert, they're their chemistry is so great that it's just really fun to watch all the way through no matter when you're watching it. Oh, it works super well. And I believe Capper said this is the only film where Clark Gable really got to play himself, um, which, as you can see, is a real charmer. And that's one of the reasons why he was such a Titanic star in the 30s um, and really dominated the era and didn't really work at Columbia? Clark Gable didn't yeah. work at Columbia. He wasn't contracted to that studio. Columbia, like we said before, Columbia was a Poverty poverty Row studio. And Poverty, poverty Row was uh, one street. It was more of a term for a collection of studios, but a lot of them did happen to be on the same street um, that were incredibly poor and were just kind of trying to make these movies on a shoestring budget. And they weren't any of the major players in Hollywood at the time like um mgm or warner brothers or fox um who who had these big name stars uh but often if one of their stars at the big studios was misbehaving or were in like contract negotiations 
and weren't getting what they wanted, they would be punished by being linked out to one of the Poverty Row studios. And the Poverty Row studio that Frank Capra happened to work at was Columbia. Yeah, so in the in the Hollywood industry, Columbia kind of had the nickname of Siberia. So when Clark Gable goes to meet with uh, Frank Capra, he's like, oh, so this is what Siberia is like. <laughs> and uh, and Frank Capra's like, well, I think MGM is Siberia because I love it here or whatever. Um, and these studios, they started out making uh, what's called two-reelers uh, in the silent era, which was just a couple years before this film came out and sound was really starting to... Uh, work its way into film. And again, this is where Frank Capra's uh, engineering background really helped him because he was able to pick up on the sound revolution a whole lot faster because he understood the mechanics and uh, the science of filmmaking more than a lot of the other filmmakers. And a lot of the film, a lot of the, uh, his contemporaries didn't know that he had the engineering background until this, and he was able to, to uh, catch on so quickly. Yeah, but anyway, so so Clark Gable is basically sent to Columbia, and then Frank Capra makes this film and literally knocks it out of the park uh, as far as all of the pieces working together. And the other the other star, uh, Claudette Colbert, who's um, brought in, was kind of had an interesting way of of getting cast also because she was working with Paramount, and she actually her first film had been directed by Frank Capra and it was a flop. So she was kind of tentative about working with him again, but she was on break from uh, Paramount and basically asked for double what they would have paid her and gave them only four weeks with her to shoot. And they agreed to it and brought her in and the chemistry with Clark Gable was great and it all just worked out great, uh, perfectly. I love I love the shift in attitudes with both of the stars who worked on this film over the course oh, yeah. of the film, who kind of like reluctant to being like, oh yeah, this is pretty okay. To oh my gosh, look at all these Oscars. Um, uh huh. Because and apparently they had a great time filming it too, and they like just everyone kind of oh, gelled yeah. on set. It shows. It definitely shows. And one of um, Frank Capra is really great with actors, and that's something we're going to see a lot today as we talk about. Um, his work over these films, um, but a lot of a lot of what happens on his sets is uh, improv. Actually, I I believe a lot of the uh, there's a very famous scene in this film where uh, where there everyone on the bus is singing uh, some song about uh, the flying trapeze artist, and a lot of that is apparently improvised. And a lot of what Frank Capra does is set up his actors for success in a scene give him the script and just have him go. And it pays off. It worked really well. You can tell how much fun uh, all of the people on the set are having in that scene, uh, just making it. It radiates off the screen. Yeah. So actually, a lot of the things that we're talking about today, I probably should mention this earlier, but these are coming from things that are mentioned in Frank Capra's autobiography, The Name Above the Title, which is our free plug of the week. Um, it's a really great book and it has a lot of this uh, information, but it's really fun to, to hear him talk about the making of these films and stuff like that. And this specific scene with uh, everyone singing on the bus um, sounded like it was great because basically they, I think they had did, done one run of the scene and then um, basically Frank Capra saw that people were kind of getting into it. So he was like, he, he got a couple more cameras and 
basically covered the scene from a bunch of different angles and said, okay, everybody just kind of do whatever you want. If you want to join into the song, you can join into it. And then he told uh, the two stars to, because they're basically, they're pretty upset at each other at this point, but he's like, as the song goes on, kind of loosen up and and uh, become more okay, start joining in and stuff like that. So he just kind of basically gives them this blanket direction, covers the scene from multiple angles so it all has the same audio track and he doesn't have to match it up afterwards and lets them go and they just have the time of their life and then the actors start warming up and then even like the bus driver starts joining in and then he gets the idea to have the bus driver be so into the song that he actually drives the bus into a ditch and so there's all these kind of things that kind of happen organically on set and that's one of the things that Frank Capra was really for um, to to give his films and his takes more of a realism and less of a very precisely mapped out and blocked out uh, feel that feels more unnatural. Right. And that's not one of the things you think about when you think about films from the 1930s. You think proscenium staging and you think everyone's sticking to the script. But in, in these Frank Capra films that are really just radiating with the joy of filmmaking. And that's maybe one of my favorite things about them is just how much fun they're having making the film itself and how much fun that how fun they are to watch and it just radiates off the screen um when you when you watch them and they're always a joy to watch i don't think i could get sick of watching it happened one night it'd be a very hard movie to get sick of watching (laughs) right like you'd have to strap me into a chair and like um clockwork orange open my eyes uh and make me watch it like 10 times in a row before i'd be like okay i think i'd uh watch something else now and it's actually funny because we brought up this film a couple weeks ago when we talked about Korea, uh, which is kind of the most random thing ever. But in the film of uh, the good, the bad, the weird, at some point, the bad is in a movie theater watching a movie and you're hearing audio clips from it happened one night of all things. This golden era Hollywood screwball comedy in this extremely violent but we still put it in the category of uh, screwball comedy, but it's in a very different vein and a very different uh, style of filmmaking. So I think I thought that was kind of funny that this film's influence is still reaching uh, all the way to today. Yeah, yeah. And it did have a very big impact at the time. I mean, obviously, like an Oscar sweep is going to be a huge deal for whoever's involved. So oh, Clark yeah. Gable and Claudette Colbert made off very well. Um, Frank Capra obviously was launched to the new It Thing director in uh, Hollywood at the time and went on to have a very successful career. Um, but Columbia itself, if you're if you're thinking it's odd to to hear Columbia in in a, in the same sense as Pro- Poverty Row when it's one of the big studios uh, nowadays, although I guess Sony kind of owns it. Um, yeah. It's still big. It's still a big deal. Right, yeah. But, you, but it everyone became, knows that that logo of um, the lady with the torch in Columbia. Like, you're very familiar with it. So, clearly, there was some impetus for it coming from a very small thing to a very big thing. And Frank Capra was a big part of that. Yeah, and this is, this is really what did it. I mean, this just, you know, a Poverty Row studio sweeping the Oscars. Man, that's huge. That's so much. So much money came in after that. All of, I mean, all the theaters at, at this time, like trying to get your movie. Well, actually, let me take that back. At all times in during the history of filmmaking, 
trying to get your movie into a distribution situation, into an exhibition situation, has always been key to having it be successful. Like, any movie can be great, but people have to see it. Somebody has to pay to see it for it to really, really matter to your uh, career. And that may sound like really, like, it sounds moneyball. It doesn't sound very artistic, but it's true. Like, somebody has to see your stuff. And this was a big part in getting Columbia's uh, next movies, the movies that came after it happened one night into theaters that made it a big st- a big deal and launched it to becoming a major studio that it would be in the later 30s, 40s, 50s, and 60s. And it's also interesting to hear uh, Frank Capra talk about how it became such a big hit because apparently it was kind of a slow burn. It opened quietly in theaters, had a, a little bit of attention, critics pretty much liked it but didn't have anything super interesting to say about it and then he says at some point over the course of a month people got really interested and and realized that hey they're remembering parts of that movie and being able to quote it and uh then other people were remembering the same parts and you could talk about it and it's fun to have conversations and quote it um, because there's so many memorable lines and scenes and so then all of a sudden it just kind of firestorm everyone went to go see it so that they could all talk about it and be involved with it and uh it just kind of exploded from there and critics would go back and re-see it and be like oh okay i see i see <laughs> like stuff like that yeah yeah we all love a shared experience of a story and this is a really good uh instance of that um, and that's what screwball comedies were kind of known for is that uh Again, that rapid fire dialogue and those memorable scenes and lines that you can quote with friends and they come up in other situations and then you have that inside joke and that's what makes a movie stick with you. Right, right. Um, One other thing we should talk about with this movie, if only an introduction, because I'm sure we're going to be talking about many, many other films on this podcast that are older, uh, that come between like 1927 and like the 1960s. Um is the Hays Code. And that's one of the things that I think makes this film so good in a weird way. Um, it, is, yeah. is the So if you don't know, the Hays Code was a code of censorship, and it went through, I think, a couple different name changes and was never officially called the Hays Code. It was just called the Hays Code because that's the guy who was heading up the uh, censorship board at the current time and it wasn't called the censorship board either we have a detailed video that'll explain all of this that will we will post um but the broad strokes the important thing is that between 1927 um and somewhere in the 60s when it kind of all fell apart uh there was this code of censorship and it went through different eras of being more strictly enforced and less strictly enforced but essentially you had to pass a certain level of um let's call it politeness uh yeah decency to to get your movie into theaters to get it distributed and like i like we just mentioned a couple minutes ago like getting your movie into theaters is super important because that's how you keep getting movies made you make money um so uh it happened one night has just some beautiful instances of skirting the haze code by wonderful wonderful innuendo uh, probably the most uh, the best example is the walls of Jericho. Whenever right. they're on the run with each other, um, Clark Gable's character will hang up a, a rope, but down the center of their hotel room, motel room. I don't even know what you call it. It's like a cabin, really. 
Um, yeah, really. And then toss a blanket over it, and he would call it the walls of Jericho. And I don't have a trumpet to blow these down, so they can essentially stay decent and stay on two separate sides of the room. Um, because she's technically married. Well, she is married throughout yeah. uh, most of the film. Yeah, and then uh, it kind of all comes together at the end where that that uh, kind of symbolism of the walls of Jericho uh, start to become a big part in uh, in their relationship and what it tells us about what it tells us the audience about uh, their relationship. There's so. a literal trumpet, anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it's a lot of fun. Like this happened a lot in these screwball comedies and in films of this era where there are a lot of like do's and don'ts of things that will get your movie uh, censored or barred and things that uh, you can get away with. And so the ways that you can imply things uh, are actually a lot of times more fun and more engaging than if we were just to uh, show them outright. And uh, so even though a lot of people complain about the Hayes Code and stuff like that, it was actually a really... uh, kind of creative stimulant for a lot of these filmmakers to think of other ways to tell their stories and they came up with some really fun and creative things yeah yeah a lot of creativity comes from problem solving and the Hayes code is a really great example of that and it happened one night in particular and and one quick uh last story from uh frank capper's autobiography actually two there's another famous part of um of hitchhiking where uh claudette colbert uses her leg to stop a car when uh, Clark Gables couldn't use his thumb to cat to get a hitch a ride from a car, and uh, apparently and by the way, we don't mean like she like Wonder Woman kicked it or anything like she just <laughs> right. flashes she, just she flashes her, her leg, leg a bit. to stop the car. Yeah, and uh, apparently originally Claudette Colbert just refused to pull up her dress and show her leg at all um, until she saw the double for the close up shot. And she was like, that's not my leg. I have to use my leg. And then she insisted on using her own <laughs> leg, um, which is kind of funny. And another thing is that she did not want to uh, show herself getting undressed and putting on her pajamas and stuff like that. So what ends up happening, Frank Capra says, is an even sexier bit where she hangs up her underwear on the, the quote, walls of Jericho. And then Clark Abel's like, I wish you would take that stuff down. And it's like... It's even more that, again, that implying is more engaging for the audience than just showing. Right, right. And it, and one of the big reasons we mention it is that it'll keep coming up because there are a lot of really fantastic movies made in the golden era of Hollywood. And the golden era of Hollywood all had the Hayes Code. Yep, yep. All right, so let's move on to our next film. And Alex, do you want to tell us about the patriotic emblem that is Mr. Smith goes to Washington. Well, golly, Jonathan, (laughs) I really do. So Mr. Smith goes to Washington is Frank Capra's ode to America, more or less. Uh, It's the mostly more, mostly more, a lot more. Um, But it's, it's it's got some controversy as to whether or not it really is. And I think that's really interesting. And we look at it from today and we're like, wow, that is super patriotic. Um, but at the time, like, I don't know, we'll get into it. I don't want to give that away. Now we have to explain kind of what the plot is about and a state unnamed, uh, Western state, something with probably a lot of national parks. I don't know. 
call it like yeah it Montana was interesting that they never gave a specific state but it kind of makes it uh in every state uh, oh yeah yeah if yeah. you will a lot a lot, a lot about this movie is supposed to be um substitutes for every part of america in fact our protagonist jefferson smith played by jimmy stewart is like your american supposed to be your american every man he doesn't know a whole lot about politics but he sure does love his country and nature um yeah in fact he's he's uh the leader of in his area of his state of whatever they call the boy scouts i think they call the boy rangers um yeah and and he is asked uh by his state's governor to fill in for their empty senate seat that was vacated at the very beginning of the movie we don't i want to say the guy dies i don't know for sure uh don't quote me on that but i'm pretty sure the guy dies and he is asked as a partial candidate who doesn't know much about uh politics to kind of just be a do-nothing senator why do they want to do nothing senator well, the state is pretty much being run by a political boss, a corrupt um, a mobster, more or less, who has his hands in all of the pockets of all of the senators and is basically running. And also the media, the which is And also the media. Important. Yeah, he, he runs the newspapers. Um, and him and the other senator, the senator who didn't die, um, are running, are currently running a scheme on a dam. Like they bought up all of the land around. Um, a creek or as they say in the movie a crick um yeah and they are they are planning on getting uh the government to buy that land to buy a dam and make money off of it that way um which which becomes very important it's like the center plot of the whole film um but when they get to washington it turns out that jefferson smith the american everyman uh isn't the do nothing that they they wanted he wants to take that land around the creek uh that is by his house now i'm just going to keep calling it creek um <laughs> around his house and turn it into a camp for all of the boy rangers in his state and maybe even all of the boy rangers in his country and he's got a really really sweet idealistic plan where he's going to um have the government buy the land and then the boys are going to the boys from all over the country are going to uh chip in like a nickel or a dime a piece and all send in and come together and buy the land and then they'll build it together and it'll be great um well the problem is that's the same land that they want that the corrupt politicians and political bosses want to use for the dam so uh what happens when jefferson smith finds out about this well he doesn't roll over he stands up and fights for what he believes is right and what he believes is the true american way not corruption um, and obviously patriotism and drama and a really good underdog story ensue um, that has you both at the same time going like, wow, this is a really obvious underdog story, but also like feeling it. Like it works. Every, every time I watch it, I'm like, wow, that was really obvious. But damn, if I didn't feel something about it. Yeah, and it's definitely like, it's kind of the classic underdog story. It's the the little man which kind of became uh the hallmark of capra's career was showing the little man going through trials going through hell and coming out triumphant in the end um but it takes he takes a beating in this film for sure it is definitely the film where um 
the the idealistic, the guy who um, is in the right. Everyone knows he's in the right, but he's getting beat down at every turn. Um, and, you know, by the end, like five minutes before the end, you don't even know if he's going <laughs> to if he's going to pull it off. Um, I but he just, doesn't know if he pulls it off at the end. I know. Exactly. Which, let, just ruminate on that. Um, it's, it is quite the, the roller coaster and you're, you're just taken up and down for, for the whole thing. But that's what the underdog story is. It's, it's the Rocky of its day, basically, um, put in a uh, political arena instead of a boxing arena. They literally, they literally say in the film, one of the reports at one point that it's David versus Goliath, but David doesn't have his slingshot. Um, Right. Like, again, like, you know, like I said before, like, it's not subtle in its underdog story, but dang, it works. But it kind of like, just aside from the things that happened is it's kind of, it's an emotional underdog story also, because Jefferson Smith's character is uh, just defined by goodwill and trust in people, and especially in his state's senator, um, who's called the quote-unquote Silver Knight. He has very striking white hair, which stands out um, in this black-and-white film uh, and makes him very identifiable, the other senator. But but the more trust that Jefferson Smith puts into him makes it that much more impactful when the white knight turns on him and starts lying and basically just so much slander is thrown at Jefferson Smith that the audience knows isn't true and they know how pure his intentions are that you just get so angry at the antagonist in this film and you it it makes you root for him like I don't think anyone can watch this film and not root for Jefferson Smith well, yeah. unless you're in the uh, United States Senate, um, and I guess we can talk about that. Yeah, the United States Senate from 1939, who didn't like how it made them look corrupt. Yeah, so that is basically the big controversy in this film, and this is a controversy that Frank Capra actually felt while making the film, is that this comes out in 1939. America hasn't joined the war yet, but is very close. Tensions are very high. And uh, Frank Capra knows that he's making basically a uh, political critique, a political satire on the United States Senate. And uh, even though it is championing, yeah, just democracy in general, it is championing um, the everyman. It is championing uh, the right of the people to get their voices heard. But at the same time, it's pointing the finger at political corruption um, in a big way and that caused a lot of stir and it was incredibly polarizing in the reviews it was uh depending on you know what which side you're in and this film like as it's being made people know that it's about uh politics and it's about the senate uh and all this and so it's got a lot of attention in washington and it plays in washington and so everyone in that arena is infuriated by it this played uh early for some people in washington and about a third of the audience walked out but then if you go to other theaters around the country they see the the little man the everyman coming out on top and uh being able to fight the big corrupt politicians and they love it and so you've got both sides of this uh reacting to the film yeah, and it definitely turned into a classic. So we can see which side won. And in fact, this was the last film that was shown, the last American film 
that was shown in France. English language, yeah. The last American English language film that was shown in France before the Nazis stopped showing all American films in France, um, which I was when when we found that out, I was just shocked that they showed any American films. But yeah, uh, and not I can only, see why they like, stopped after this one. Right, and not only was it that this would just like happen to be the last one in theaters, but it was actually chosen by the French cinemas and by the French people as the final film. So they picked this film to be the last one to be shown because it has such an optimistic message. Yeah, yeah, which was definitely uh, needed at the time. And, you know, it's it's a very, very idealistic film. It's 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 very tempting to look at it uh, from a cynical uh, modern day perspective, um, a, a realistic perspective and be like, that's not how America is. And I would say, yeah, you're right. You're 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 not wrong. But this isn't what this film is about. This is uh, it, it's not about portraying a super realistic version of America. It's about portraying a very idealistic version of America um and and the values uh that would be found in a very idealistic version of america where the little guy wins and i'm not saying that's never true i'm not saying that's always true i don't even want to talk about that too much um because the the ideals that are shown in this film relate heavily to capra's own story which really in and of itself looks like a picture of the american dream i mean he's a poor sicilian immigrant who manages to find uh, education and success in Hollywood and become one of the fam- most famous and successful directors ever. And he yeah. creates very American films. And in fact, there's a really great uh, quote that relates to Capra's story. When he first came into America with his family as a kid, um, him and his family came into a boat in New York. And in New York Harbor, his... Uh, his father told him to look up at the Statue of Liberty. And uh, he said something along the lines of, look up, look at that. That's the greatest light since the Star of Bethlehem. That's the light of freedom. Remember that. Freedom. Freedom in italics. I'm not a great actor, so there you go. Um, but, you know, that, that kind of patriotism, that kind of excitement for freedom and the ideals of America that, you know, were found in the Constitution, which I think is read multiple times in... Mr. Smith goes to Washington um, is what motivated Capra throughout a lot of his life and what you see in his films. So it's, it's tempting to, to not like uh, Mr. Smith goes to Washington because you're like, Oh, it's too idealistic. But I'm like, but they're good ideals. They're good ideals to have. And it's a celebration of those ideals and the potential of what America can be at times and that's that's one of the reasons why i love this film so much and i think why capra loved america so much yeah and in another moment that mixes monuments and ideals uh which you know washington is full of uh both of those one way or another um one of the most famous scenes in the film is um or i guess in there's a very patriotic montage, maybe the most patriotic <laughs> montage that has a bunch of the Washington monuments and uh, American flag flying over them and stuff like that. And we've talked about montage before and uh, it feels cheesy now because we've seen so many 
different montages and it almost feels like a parody, but that's kind of, again, at the beginning of that kind of technique and those kind of uh, montages. But in another moment, there's uh, Jefferson Smith goes to the Lincoln Memorial and he sees a little boy reading the words of Lincoln's second inaugural to his grandfather. And um, this is something that actually happened to Frank Capra when he was feeling very overwhelmed about the production of this film. Uh, And like I said, really wrestling with uh, why am I making this film in this time of political uh, turmoil and just world turmoil. And he sees this, this little boy reading to this very old and uh, fragile man. And he says in his uh, autobiography, never had Lincoln's impassioned moral indictment of slavery sounded so eloquent, so moving, so powerful as when that young boy read it to his grandfather. That scene must go in our film, I thought. We must make the film, if only to hear a boy read Lincoln to his grandpa. And that's really powerful. These are the things that filmmakers draw from, these life experiences. And, uh, you know, again, this is ref- this film reflects Frank Capra's life in a lot of ways. And um, how that moment, it was kind of an encouragement to Frank Capra in the way that he uses it to encourage Jefferson Smith to hold fast to his ideals and uh, to this bill that he's trying to pass in the face of all of this uh, slander and um, uh, controversy and uh, opposition. Yeah, and I also want to point out real quick, it's a really tiny thing, um, but Jefferson Smith is supposed to be the everyman, everyman character. Um, and the most generic name in uh, the English language is probably John Smith. Um, but instead of using John Smith, they switched John to Jefferson, as in Thomas Jefferson, and made it Jefferson Smith. Right. And I was like, that's the most patriotic everyman name. <laughs> I love it. It's it's, yeah. it's so tiny, but it's so clever. Um, I also want to talk about the, the the camera technique in this work, because you mentioned montage just a minute ago. And a lot of the montage and the montage we're talking about specifically is when uh, Jefferson Smith first gets to Washington and instead of going to his senatorial office, like he's supposed to, he's like, Ooh, America and runs around looking at all of the memorials and we see him on a tour bus and we see all of the, the memorials and the monuments and the flags. And it's all very star spangled and star struck. Um, but that that sequence, that montage, reminded me a whole lot of early Soviet montage, actually. And I was like, it's very interesting that we have two examples of that on the podcast. One that's very, very Soviet, and one that's very, very American. And I kind of like that dichotomy there, that we have two, uh, two uses of a very similar technique on two very different I- ideologies. Um, yeah. I just wanted to talk about one other camera thing that I saw, and I think we both really appreciated. Um was this really interesting moment where uh, Jefferson Smith is trying to, I, I guess he's trying to flirt with... Uh, well, he's flustered. <laughs> he's flustered. He's He should be flirting at this moment with the uh, uh, the daughter of the other senator, who is his age and is uh, one Very of attractive. the socialites about town. Um, and everyone thinks they'd be a good match. But he's very flustered and he can't really get a sentence out and he's... He's uh he's stammering, a la Jimmy Stewart, um. And instead of watching his face, 
we just see him fiddling with his hat. It's like this one minute long shot of him messing with his hat. And it's a close up on his hat. And he keeps like moving it and changing positions and he drops it a couple times. And I'm like, that's really clever. That to not show his face, but to shed, show his hat. Because it tells us more about his frame of mind than we would get from just seeing a boring old reverse shot, reverse shot. Yeah, and it's also a little bit of just physical comedy where he keeps dropping it and he has to bend down and pick it up. But yeah, we were both kind of struck because we haven't seen something quite like that, or especially in an older film like this where it would be more standard coverage usually, but this was just a really creative kind of tracking shot of of the hat as a uh, a symbol of his emotional state. And again, it's that implying rather than telling. Right, right. Uh, do you have anything else for this film? Yeah, I was just going to say one more thing as far as uh, going back a little bit to when you talked about how we have such a American patriotic montage versus the Soviet montage, but also tying that into this idea of the mixed receptions and stuff because... Uh, a lot of the politicians saw it as kind of anti-American and pro-communist, ironically, which is the opposite of what this film is trying to be. Uh, and uh, But on the other hand, in the literally communist and fascist countries, it was completely banned in Germany and Italy and Spain during the war. Um, and Capra also claims that in certain countries, the lines and the because the film ends with a filibuster so it's a lot of ideals being spoken about for a very long time but a lot of the lines were redubbed with different words um and actually changed the meaning to fit the uh ideological message that whichever certain country um would want to promote and i was it's actually kind of an interesting thing to think about because that's kind of a really scarily easy thing to do uh, when you have this film and you take away all the audio and you just have the video and then you can change any of this idealistic dialogue to be whatever you want it to be. Um, so I thought that was really uh, interesting and uh, kind of this, this scary power that art has and this distortion that can happen across cultures intentionally or unintentionally. Right, because the, the, the sympathy we feel for Jefferson Smith during that final filibuster uh, radiates without any of the dialogue. You could turn the sound off, and it would it would still be very sympathetic. So you're right. That would be. Oh gosh, I'm terrified to think of what some of those countries, and you probably know which ones I'm thinking about, would put in there. I actually don't want to know. I never want to think about that. But right. And um, one one quick uh, other technique thing, uh, because Frank Capra was always about finding new techniques and ways to make things sound more. Uh, authentic or look more authentic as we've talked about and uh, so for example in an older film that we're not covering today he wanted to he was filming a very cold scene and he wanted it to see he wanted to see the actor's breath and so his <laughs> idea was to put dry ice in a little cage in the actor's mouth and that did not end very well for at least one of, <laughs> one of the actors uh, when the cage broke after a very passionate scene um but in this film, in order to make Jimmy Stewart very hoarse uh, at the end of his filibuster, Jimmy Stewart couldn't quite get the hoarseness of his voice right just by um, 
just by kind of affecting it himself. So what they did was they called a doctor and they're like, you can cure a horse throat, but can you make one? <laughs> and the, their idea was to get this uh, kind of mercury solution and just coat Jimmy Stewart's throat with it until it got uh, all red and swollen. And so these are some of the things Wait, that early mer- Hollywood... Mercury? Like, yes, mercury. <laughs> a solution oh with mercury in it. Oh, 1939. Don't come Yeah, back. these are some of the things that old Hollywood would do to try and get the right shot. It's all for the art, but sometimes it was not great for the health. I would define that as too far, but maybe they just didn't know better. I, I they probably know. did not know the full effects of mercury at that point, but... Uh, oh, gosh. Oh, gosh, yeah. yeah. No. Ugh. Anyway, anyway, talking about things that might be a little disturbing, let's move on to our last movie, Arsenic and Old Lace from 1944. And Jonathan, do you want to try to explain what that one's about? Yes, I can explain what it's about, although I'm not sure uh, we can (laughs) put it into a neat category because it's kind of a unique film. Basically, it was originally a Broadway play that uh, Frank Capra, who knew he was about to go start working for the war. He knew he could film it quickly and cheaply because coming off of Broadway, it is a very uh, contained script. It mostly happens in the little foyer area of this one house. Um, But basically, it's about these two old ladies um, who have this habit of old men coming to uh, lease rooms in their apartment, and if they have no family and are just kind of lonely, they will uh, poison them with arsenic to make them uh, happy because they have nothing to live for in the world. I like how you describe serial killing as a habit. It is. Well, that's actually how it's described in the the movie. I think Cary Grant says, this is developing into a very bad habit. Um, (laughs) Oh, gosh. This is, again, another movie that's very quotable, um, very fast-paced in the same uh, vein as those um, those screwball comedies, although this one has a much darker twist, as you can see. Um, but anyway, Cary Grant's character is uh, the nephew of these two ladies, and he's just gotten married, and then he finds out about <laughs> his aunt's habits, and uh, along the way, the... Uh, Cary Grant's brother comes along who has the face looking like Frankenstein and his little assistant uh, played by Peter Lorre, basically his Igor. <laughs> and uh, I love Peter Lorre. He's so <laughs> he's wonderfully so creepy. He's so great. Um, so all of these things are happening in this house and they end up having two bodies that they're trying to bury. Oh, and there's another brother who uh, thinks he's Teddy Roosevelt, which is just tons of fun. And he always... Uh, when he goes upstairs, he he uh, calls it San Juan Hill and he goes, charge! And then he slams the door to his room. <laughs> and uh, that causes um, a lot of police attention because they get noise complaints and that goes into all this criminal activity. So again, it's that screwball comedy idea of all these ridiculous situations happening with fast lines and witty dialogue. And it's just so much fun and so... Uh, so engaging and uh and quotable and memorable yeah yeah it's definitely um oh gosh i'm I, i'm like there's so much to talk about with this film but i'm kind of at a loss as to where to categorize it where to think about it like i mentioned earlier like it's 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 a wonderful comedy it's a wonderful messed up comedy um I'm not sure anyone really learned a lesson over the course of it, but that's okay. 
Um, it's, it's just a bunch of really, really insane people in the same room. And that's, that's a big part of it. I mean, one of Cary Grant's lines again is, uh, he's talking to his brand new bride and he says, well, honey, uh, insanity seems to run in my family. In fact, it practically gallops because he's learning all of these crazy things about every person that he's related to, um, or thinks he's related to. Dun, 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 dun. Um, yeah, like, because both his aunts are, well, they clearly don't have their heads on straight if they think killing all those old men is okay. Or at least, I really hope they don't. And, and that, then that plays into it, is their, their kind of twisted sense of morality, where, again, another line is uh, where Mortimer, Cary, Cary Grant's character, is saying, you just admitted that you poisoned 13 men in the basement. And his aunt says... Well, yes, but you don't think I would stoop to telling a fib? So that kind of sums up their their whole head on this whole thing. Yeah, and they're horribly offended that um, their uh, Cary Grant's brother, who comes back, he comes back with Peter Laurie and a dead body, a man who they have uh, murdered, and uh, buries him in the basement along with all the other bodies that the ants have killed. And the ants are deeply offended that they would bury a foreigner in their basement along with them. And I'm like, wow. Wow, that's messed up on a lot of levels. But yeah. wow, is it funny to watch when the, them deliver this dialogue? Because it's all about the dialogue and the wit and the energy in the room. And and how sweet the old ladies are. Like, they're so non-malicious. They're just like the classic sweet old ladies that you love. And uh, they like could be anyone's grandma kind of a thing. It, they just kill people. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's such it's so at odds with what you'd expect. It's, it's basically funny. And that's kind of like the key to Arsenic and Old Lace. But Capra is also really good with comedies, as we already noticed with um, um, It Happened One Night, obviously. But his whole his whole uh, improvisation, uh, no rehearsals, or at least like one walkthrough and then like cameras on go right. technique with comedies works really well here. Because a lot of one of my favorite parts of this film is Cary Grant's reaction to everything. Yeah, his it's face. It's so brilliant. Because it's, so, it, it's so sympathetic because it's just... it's the it, Without seeing it, the best way to explain it is it's the best what the face you could possibly have. And it's the exact... It's almost the exact reaction you're having at the same time. Because you're like, wait, these little old ladies kill people? What?! And he's having it at the same time. And he just does a brilliant job throughout the whole course of the film. Like, he's bouncing off walls like a madman, almost literally, um, over the course of the film. And the whole the whole cast is going through these, uh, actually, literally acrobatics at a few times uh, to, yeah. to pull off this story and this comedy. Yeah, and it all goes into the fact that, again... This film had to be made incredibly quickly. He had four weeks to shoot the film. A week before filming ended, Pearl Harbor happened. So then Frank Capra is like kind of on a time crunch so that he can go work for the military again and create his series of propaganda films called the Why We Fight series. Um, but he was given a, a, a six-week leave of absence so that he could finish editing and stuff. And then it wasn't allowed to be released until after the war. But basically all of these, like the fact that, that this is such a kind of simple setup and it's all carried by the dialogue and by the acting 
but it makes it really easy to shoot because you just have this foyer and you can, uh, I think he said that he had his A camera constantly on a jib so he could throw it wherever he wanted to and the B camera was wild. So basically just probably uh, on a tripod that they could put wherever and just punch in and get quick little close-ups. And uh, Frank Capra says that his his um, kind of origins in Hollywood where he was making those uh, two-reelers, which were the silent uh, comedies that the studios would make because they would have to put them out really quickly. And two-reelers are like 20 minutes long because uh, each reel of film is about 10 minutes. Um, so basically he had a lot of experience when he first started working of creating these really quick comedies and turning them around really, really fast to get them out to... Uh, audiences and that really helped him out here and the simplicity of the story but really just the level of performance that everyone brought to it elevates it to such a great film and about half of the major players are the original Broadway cast uh, so both of the ants and Teddy uh, are all from the actual Broadway play, and then he just uh, pulled them over into his movie and changed out a couple other uh, of the actors who weren't available, including Boris Karloff. You want to talk about that, Alex? Yeah, yeah. The the originally um, Cary Grant's brother in the play, uh, Jonathan Brewster, is played by Boris Karloff on the on Broadway. But he wasn't allowed to or he wasn't available or something. Boris Korloff, if you haven't seen him, he's the guy who played Frankenstein. And he has a very... Um, distinctive. Distinctive face. Like he, like saying, oh, that guy looks like Boris Karloff. is funny because of how Boris Karloff looks. Um, because which, he like, plays just, Frankenstein. <laughs> seriously, give so. him a quick Google. Like, understand yeah. how he looks. Uh, but but the, since he wasn't able to play uh, Jonathan Brewster in the movie, um, they make a lot of Boris Karloff jokes in the film. They were like, oh, that guy looks like Boris Karloff. Yeah, so part of the story is that um, Jonathan Brewster, who's a criminal and he's on the run, has uh, Peter Lorre, who's his little assistant, who's also a plastic surgeon, give him a new face, but Peter Lorre was drunk and he had just watched Frankenstein. So he gave him literally Boris Karloff's face from Frankenstein. And so everyone is making jokes like, hey, he looks like Boris Karloff. He looks like Boris Karloff. And so it's funny on the one hand, uh, just on its face, because it literally looks like uh, Frankenstein. He's got the scars on his face and everything. Uh, but also because the character was played by Boris Karloff on Broadway. So it kind of works uh, on a meta level there as well. And another uh, joke that we should talk about in reference to this play is charge. Because if you've ever heard of the baseball charge, and I know I have um, <laughs> several times, many, yeah. many, many times. I spent a lot of time at baseball games as a kid. But <laughs> charge! Um, this is believed to be where it came from. Like, yeah, there's, Frank there's some disputing the that. fact, but it seems pretty clear that this is where it came from. Yeah, so Frank Capra actually claims this in his autobiography, and uh, it kind of makes sense if you track it, uh, because basically the film wasn't released until after the war. However, um, Jack Warner, this film was actually made under Warner Brothers Studios uh, because Frank Capra's contract with Columbia ended after uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. But Jack Warner allowed the film to be shown to 
all the troops, the American troops, um, in their barracks about a year earlier than he was allowed to release it to the public in America. And so what happened is the soldiers all loved it. And Frank Capra would hear them joking about it and yelling charge and stuff uh, when he was in the barracks with them and stuff like that. So, again, it's one of those quotable lines that sticks with you and that you want to share. So the war ends and then eventually the uh, Los Angeles Dodgers kind of their fans pick it up as this rally cry, this charge. And uh, then it kind of just snowballs from there into other sports. So that's what Frank Capra claims kind of tracks to me. But uh, I don't know if there's another uh, origin explanation. uh, Shoot it our way. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't there. I don't know. But the point is, like, it, it seems pretty plausible. And I like I like the thought of it. All right. With that, let's shift into our overall notes and talk about uh, Frank Capra in general. So one of Frank Capra's kind of defining ideas throughout his career is what he calls one film, one man, which means that whenever he took on a project, he wanted control of everything, which he wanted to have input on the editing and the shooting and the casting and uh, all of these things. And that was a big deal, especially in the studio system where the production heads were basically God and they could <laughs> control anything in your film that they wanted to at any point. But uh, whenever he started, he was very firm. And Harry Cohn, who was the head of Columbia, uh, they basically had this this head to head rapport where they they worked together very well. But Frank Capra would stand very strong on certain things and uh and Harry Cohn would have to kind of work with that. And then as they kind of developed, Frank Capra got his reputation. And so basically that's how he liked to work. He wanted to have control over everything. And this is kind of an early form or an independent development of auteurship, uh, which we talked about with France, with auteur theory. And that's what Frank Capra was doing. He wanted to have his hand on everything so that each film that he made had his mark and his uh, stamp of approval. And that's why his uh, autobiography is called The Name Above the Title, because he wanted to say a Frank Capra film and every part of it has been uh, kind of overseen and approved by Frank Capra himself so that it is a part of him. And that was a huge part of his career. And as we've seen with some of the other films on the world tour, uh, which this is somewhat a, uh, a part of that as far as bringing America into the mix in the same time period as some of the films that we talked about uh, on the world tour. This was his form of that auteurship. It's it's actually really interesting because one of the uh, I, I dug up this really great interview uh, with Frank Capra this week. And we can post a link to it on uh, on the blog post, but uh, it's actually on like this French television show about filmmaking, and I, I just found that really funny because it was definitely from like the seventies or eighties or something like that when the French auteur theory had really bloomed and the idea of um, film as art had really come into its own. Um, and then they they went back and talked to one of the men who had kind of been doing that without consciously thinking of it as auteur theory um, since like the 1920s, 1930s. Yeah. And uh, 
I mean, that's a lot of where that comes from, where the the French people finally started seeing, and we talked about all this in France again, but when they started seeing American films and they saw Frank Capra films and Hitchcock films and stuff like that, and they were like, every film that these people make has a distinctive look and has a distinctive feel. Um, and how do we do that? And what do we call it? So that's where it comes from. And uh, Frank Capra's little phrase for that was one film, one man, but it's basically the same thing. Yeah, it's the same kind of research that we do here on the film links, just with less French. Um, <laughs> exactly. For most episodes. I mean, we've had a couple that were very French, but um, I'm sure many more. But not the point. The point is Frank Capra. And one of the one of the most important and standout things about his work that I've seen um, is his emphasis on the actor's performance, and which was kind of the original job of the director. Um before you know they kind of took control over more and more of the creative side of the film um and and the technical innovations that he he worked with to make that happen and we've already seen a lot of that through his emphasis on improvisation through all of his films um but jonathan i think you you found one that was really really interesting um that i don't even see a lot of people use today but it it, it really helped actors with their performances yeah so one of the things that uh, he kind of started experimenting with with uh, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. Um, and I think he actually talks about this in that interview that you mentioned. But his the problem that he was having uh, with performances a lot of times would be basically uh, the traditional way to shoot a scene is to shoot a master shot, which is a wide shot where you can capture all of the action um, and just roll throughout the entire scene. And then afterwards, you go back and you shoot the actors' close-ups and you get them individually during, doing their part of the scene. But whichever actors are not part of the scene would just leave and they would put X's and you would have a script girl uh, basically read the lines to you. And then you have to put on all the same emotion uh, that you had when you had all your co-actors around you um, to feed off of their energy. And he wasn't getting the same amount of energy and emotion uh, that he had in the master shots in the close-ups where it really matters where you can see that emotion. So his idea was to take the audio from their master shot and replay it over and over again for the actor before they did their, their scene so that they could, the actor could remember and have that emotion fresh in their mind and have the other actors lines before and after fresh in their minds. And then you don't have some script girl who's not really into it, just kind of saying the lines without the emotion of a professional actor. And you get that emotion uh, from the actress or actor as they're doing their close-up. Um, so I think that that innovation continued in Hollywood after that. And there are several other examples of things like that. And also like we've talked about where he would use dry eyes or mercury or whatever, whatever it took to get the right effect that he wanted. Another thing he did for uh, a cold scene in a different movie was instead of building a soundstage, he found the largest freezer in Los Angeles that he could and literally built his soundstage inside of an actual freezer where uh, it was like a meat freezer that, that was big enough to fit his scene and you could see the actor's breath and no, no worry of dry ice damage in actor's mouths. Yeah, kind of uncomfortable to shoot in, but better than dry ice or mercury in your mouth, right. that's for sure. But it is it is remarkable dedication to uh, the shot, especially considering like how many times I've seen people be reluctant to play back something on set today with digital oh, yeah. technology, 
Could you imagine like having to like run upstairs and press a freaking record? I don't even know how you press a freaking record. But like <laughs> press a freaking record, bring it down and play it on like a phonograph or some crap like that. I don't even know. And uh he was also interested in the audience's reaction to his to his work and what he could do to improve their reaction to his work. Um in fact, he talks about in the interview that we're going to post how he used to go to theaters and um, watch the movie along with uh, audience members without them knowing that he was there and gauge their reactions and gauge his own reactions. And he said he, uh, especially in the early days of sound film, he was always um, he was always worried by the very long walls in dialogue um, between dialogue and how slow it was. So he, he really worked on speeding it up and he tried to make every scene a bit faster and a bit more interesting until you get to the point where in basically all three of the films today have that uh, golden era uh, snappy dialogue that that is so signatory of the era. Um, and he was a big part in developing that, um, of developing this fast-paced um, delivery that really like defined an era and kept the audience really interested from line to line. Yeah, and it, it keeps you uh, engaged in the film if for no other reason than if you if you tune out for like a second, you're gonna miss something, and then you're gonna miss something uh, that maybe has importance later on, or you'll miss the setup to a joke that pays off later on. So, um, but again, it's that that rapid fire and those those witty lines that everyone remembers and and keeps you coming back. And again, with the the technical innovations, we talked about how he. Uh, had an engineering degree and would kind of use his scientific knowledge to uh, assist with his artistic, um, the artistic side of things. He really had a good uh, blend of those sensibilities, again, trying to get the best performances, but also being able to work on the technical side with audio and stuff like that. And there's even a story about how um, in the middle of that screening for uh, the people in Washington, the the film reel actually started burning up in the projector and it screwed up and he ran up to the booth to try and fix it. Cause he knows how to, how to actually work the projector or whatever. Um, and so it's just, he had that, that perfect mix of the, the technical mind and the artistic mind and the emotional mind that you need, uh, to be able to bring a film together because they're not only art, they are science. And uh, having at least a working knowledge, and Frank Capra had more than a working knowledge of both sides, is what really elevates his work above some other directors. Right, and he's he's really is a standout of um, the early golden era. And he worked with some huge talent, like just titanic names, like Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert, Jimmy Stewart, Cary Grant. Those are all the ones that we talked about today. And there's there's many, many more. And he worked um, with all of them multiple times. Oh, he, yeah. He had a little bit of that thing we've talked about before where you have like your pet cast or whatever um, and you work with similar actors over and over again. Definitely with the leading men, he had uh, uh, a rapport and would use them uh, many times. Obviously, with uh, It's a Wonderful Life, um, there's many characters from Mr. Smith Goes to Washington or actors, I should say, that recur in It's a Wonderful Life and many of the other films. Yeah, yeah, they definitely helped uh, elevate and define each other's careers um, in a really important way. And that kind of brings me to um, just the impressive like legacy of Frank Capra as the 
um, American dream come true in Hollywood as the all-American filmmaker who was born in Sicily. Um, like, it's it's really impressive, and it's worth uh, taking a look at uh, his film. And I don't think uh, many people think old movies and think auteur, um, except for maybe Hitchcock and a few yeah. few select others. But Capra is definitely worthy of the title um, if you're into giving out such things. Uh, and, and his films are definitely worth checking out, and we certainly enjoyed these three this week. And they're all very three very fun movies or very emotional movies that are worth a watch. Yeah, and his films still hold up, like we were talking about. Um, the the humor holds up, and also the the patriotic spirit and the devotion to country is uh, perhaps even more relevant now than ever. And this just the idea that America can overcome corruption and that the you the little the little man should never give up hope because there's always a chance and there's always hope and uh and i think the ideals that he covers and the uh the way that he does them is just something that is pretty much timeless for uh now or anytime or here or anywhere right i mean get this jonathan it happened one night is over 80 years old that's insane <laughs> that's crazy we watched it this week and i laughed my butt off at it and it was delightful and it was over 80 years old so that was our kind of uh bow on the end of the world tour to bring it back to an all-american director after being abroad for many weeks and next week we have we're still in america we're kind of getting back into our normal swing of things and we're doing something that we haven't done before uh, after however many episodes that we're on now. And what is that, Alex? What new realm are we stepping into? Musicals! So I cannot sing very well, and I won't try to because I don't want to hurt your ears and I want you to keep listening, but the musicals that we are talking about next week where people can sing very well um, are coming from a very wide range of, of time periods and we're going to kind of try to take a look at the development of the musical over almost the past century it's been a while um so we're going to be taking a look at 42nd street from 1933 and then the second film that we'll be watching is singing in the rain the classic from 1952 and our final film will be la la land from 2016 which is still one of the number one played tracks on my spotify and <laughs> here it goes again it's just another day of sun. There are just so many classic musicals, so many great musicals that we cannot possibly hope to cover all of them in one week. And we're not claiming to. We just picked three from three distinct um, epics, if you will, of musical history. Um, the very classic Busby Berkeley, um, the kind of well-known... Uh, a pitiful musical, Singing in the Rain, and then La La Land from uh, very recently. And they all kind of have this running theme of show business and this kind of meta commentary. So that will be very fun to look at next week. That's about all the time we have for this episode. If you have movie suggestions for us or just want to reach out, I can be found on Twitter at, at JS Satchel. And I'm at Alex Garinger. And to find links to the things that we talked about today, you can view them on the blog at thefilmlings.com. 
If you like the show, let us know. Leave us a review on iTunes so other people will know what we're all about. We definitely appreciate it. Talk to you next week. All right, see ya. When he got to, when he, when he first came to America and he came into New York, uh, his father told him to look up at the Eiffel Tower. Oh my gosh. <laughs> look up at the Eiffel Tower in New York. <laughs> <laughs>